Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I honestly thought Democrats were going to have a better night than they did. But when I did see the voter turnout coming in, I was extremely reluctant to say this is for sure good for Democrats. I asked people on the ground, what do you see? What do you hear? And everyone just tells me how the rural areas were blanketed with Trump enthusiasm, barns painted, signs everywhere. And um, I mean, it is a, you get past those cities and it just drops really quickly into Republican territory. Hello and welcome to Why Is This Happening with me, your host, Chris Hayes. I'm back in the podcast closet because why am I here? I don't know. It's um, maybe because all of us are starting to feel a little March-April vibes right now. And by vibes, I mean like terror and anxiety as the COVID cases shoot up around the country. That's not the topic of today's podcast. So if you want to take your mind off that, then keep your ear holes plugged right here. Uh, instead, we're going to talk about another sort of depressing topic. <laughs> you know how I do, uh, which is the great state of Texas. Now, Texas is not depressing because Texas is an amazing, amazing place. It's so interesting. It's so unlike any other state in the union. It's so big. It's so diverse and varied. It has such fascinating and bizarre politics, fascinating and bizarre history, a ton of like microcultures. There are places that are in the state of Texas that are really unlike anywhere else in the entire United States, the Rio Grande Valley being a, a great example of that. The metro areas around Texas have seen incredible growth in population, and they've also seen incredible transformation politically. And of course, for years, I mean, the, the Democrats have not won a statewide election. Oh, God, I think it's like 1994, if I'm not mistaken, like basically back since Ann Richards. It's been a shockingly long period of time. And there's always this kind of idea that like, well, actually, if you squint at it and you look at the growth of suburban metro areas and the fact that it's a low turnout state with a high Latino population, there should be a universe in which you can turn blue. And will this be the time? And, you know, it's Lucy and the football over and over and over and again. The closest actually was 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 the Beto O'Rourke Ted Cruz race in 2018, which really did come quite close. Uh, I think two points, maybe a little less than two points statewide, which was, was an incredible result given um, how moribund statewide candidates in, in Texas have been. This election, there was polling down the stretch that showed the race tied, but basically like all the polling, it was systematically off by about four or five points. And I think when all the votes are counted, Donald Trump will beat Joe Biden in Texas by about five points. Also down ballot, um, there was a lot of hope about flipping one of the houses of the state legislature. That didn't happen as well. And all in all, a kind of terrible night for Texas Democrats. With that said, I have to note that, you know, between 2016 and 2020 in presidential elections, the state still shifted about three points to the left. That's a huge deal. Like, to give you a sense, that's way more than Wisconsin, which went from a narrow Trump win to a narrow Trump loss. I think it only flipped about, you know, less than 1% in one direction. It's better than North Carolina, which, again, North Carolina moved to the left, but by not enough to split the state. It's less than Georgia, which went about five points to the left. But three points, moving a state three points to the left, 
is a huge deal that is a little bit obscured by the fact that we have an electoral college system that only really gives you the points if you get over the hump. So I've long been obsessed with Texas politics. My brother worked down there for a while. I have a lot of friends down there. I spent a lot of time down there. I've done reporting on there. I tend to like think about it a lot and and be in contact with a lot of Texans about what's going on down there. And one of the best political reporters in the entire state right now is Abby Livingston. She's the Washington bureau chief for the Texas Tribune. She's a seventh generation Texan, and it's great to have her on Why Is This Happening? Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. We should note up front that this is our third attempt to have you on the program. There was one attempt which went awry technically, which was like so embarrassing. And I was like sweating like a stuck animal as like we wasted your time. And then I had to get back to do the show. Uh, and then you were going to come on like the Friday after election, Thursday after election day. But it was during a stretch where I was doing like anchoring five hours of, tele- of programming in a 20 hour stretch. But now you're here and we're, we can both hear each other. So this is huge progress. And I almost sabotaged the technical side on my end, so I was sweating this time. So I'm okay. glad we're we're connected. So before before we get to like, let's I want to sort of set some context in history um, before we get to looking at at 2020. Um, let's first sort of talk about you know. The, the rise of Republican total Republican domination in the state of Texas. I mean, obviously Texas was at one point back in the day, a Democratic stronghold, and that's where LBJ comes from, and that's sort of a um, a vestige of the solid South, uh, that it it moves away from that. When, when do Republicans really start to come to dominate the state's politics? Um, so I would say probably 1990, 1994. So in the 80s, there was a governor, Bill Clements, who was a Republican, and I believe he was the first Republican in a long time. I could be mistaken on that fact. And so... Um, 1990 was when future Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison became the state treasurer and future Governor Rick Perry uh, won a races uh, who had previously been a Democrat, switched parties and ran for, um, I believe, agriculture commissioner. And they broke through on lower levels in the same year Ann Richards won the governor's race. And that was sort of the breakthrough. And then 1994, when George W. Bush challenged Ann Richards, that's when it really started. There were a couple of statewide Democrats um, underneath him that lasted until 1990. And then the the executive branch was effectively Republican. Um, Bush goes to the presidency. Perry becomes governor. And then um, in 2002, Republicans take the last uh, outstanding arm of the government, which I believe was the state House of Representatives on the strength of Bush and the 2002 midterms that I was in college at the time. And I remember, even though they were state government races, almost all of them were about terrorism. So um, that was sort of when things changed. And that was when you had Tom DeLay b- become sort of the supreme uh, uh, house person. Um, Hutchison was rising through the ranks and then they redistricted and there were more Republicans in the Texas federal delegation. And it's sort of been homeostasis since then with some ebbs and flows in both directions. Yeah. And we should say that like what happened in Texas is part of a larger regional trend right around that time. I mean, it's really wild when you think about American history, which is that 
you know, the Democratic Party is the party of treason and secession. And then it's, you know, during around the time of the Civil War, it then becomes the party of white supremacy and and Jim Crow and redemption and a battling of Reconstruction and becomes the dominant party throughout the South, including in the state of Texas, which has a complicated relationship to the, you know, Confederacy for for a bunch of reasons. And even though that that's set in the, you know, 1870s, it it persists for basically like 90 years. <laughs> I mean, you know, it starts to break apart at the presidential level in the 1960s, even before then it starts to break apart with Strom Thurmond's 1948 presidential run as, as a Dixiecrat and then Wallace's runs in 68 and we see it breaking apart breaking apart, but at the local level it's really like it really comes apart in the Gingrich Revolution in those early 90s was when the thing kind of breaks, when, you know, you get delay and you get Gingrich and you get all these people. And that's and that's what happens in Texas. And then you basically get Republican total domination of the state starting then, right? Absolutely. And my dad grew up in West Austin uh, in the 50s and 60s. And that was an era when Lyndon Johnson lived there, John Connolly. Um, and he was surrounded by all of these children of politicians who were all Democrats. Um, and the, there was a real fight between the conservative faction and the liberal faction of the state Democratic Party with the Republicans largely irrelevant. And um, it, it was, there's a really great book by the former lieutenant governor um, from the 60s named Ben Barnes. And he sort of kind of through 1972 details the decline of the Democratic Party in the state. And I actually had a Republican source who encouraged me to read it because he is so worried about his own party. And this was before the last election, but the fear of what one party rule can eventually destroy the party, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's no, that's interesting. I mean, I think one party rule. Look, I think democracies need to be competitive to be healthy in some ways. And, and one party rule tends to get pretty bad and moribund. And I think there's like one party rule in Texas. One of the things that makes covering Texas politics, quote unquote, fun is that one party rule doesn't mean there's not conflict. Like basically different factions of the Republican Party absolutely go to town on each other like session after session. Absolutely. Um, there is definitely a, a libertarian slash tea party slash evangelical strain. And clearly the Bushes are the, 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 the drivers of the push toward the Republican party. So what is fascinating right now is there are so many Bush operatives who I, who maybe are a little older than me, but who I sort of grew up with who are looking at this and saying, this isn't my Republican party. And so there is a real division. Our state house speaker, our likely next one in the past two have come about through a coalition of Democrats and Republicans with the, 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 the very far right wings of the Republican party sometimes being the odd man out. And actually our new state chairman, GOP chairman is a former congressman from Florida named Alan West. And he's actually come out saying that it's traitorous to join with Democrats and to build a coalition for speaker. So it is extremely messy and extremely complicated and extremely fun. So what what has Republican rule for the last, say, you know, since George W. Bush is he's the governor, he leaves to become president. You've got this you got Tom DeLay, who's this incredibly powerful federal figure. And then, um, you know, and then Rick Perry and then Greg Abbott. Like what 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 has been the sort of status quo or the equilibrium achieved by this long period of Republican rule in Texas? Well, I mean, it's been keeping taxes low. The perennial debate in state politics is how to fund schooling. Um, I think sort of my clarifying moment as a political professional and 
journalism. Um, I went to the state GOP convention a few years ago, and in between speeches, they'd run commercials from each of the statewide officials. And literally every single official ran an ad on how they were the most anti-abortion uh, person in the state. And I mean, th- this would be like the railroad commissioner, which is a kind of right. misnomer. It's overseas oil and gas regulation. And they, and I, you know, I see my parents uh, get direct mail and I would look at their direct mail and it would be, again, like anti-abortion for um, offices that had nothing to do with it. So I think that's a key driver. Within the Texas delegation in Congress, they used to be very, very lockstep. And once Senator Hutchison retired and once Tom DeLay um, removed himself, it's it's become more splintered. And that that is goes back to the old Lyndon Johnson days of it's this huge delegation. They can work as a unit. Um, they worked as a unit somewhat in Hurricane Harvey relief, but it is definitely much more scattered now. And um, I, I don't know what this new delegation is going to be like, but it is definitely not the the, the unit it used to be. So what what are one of the big sort of trends in Texas over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, again, aligns with other trends. We've seen this happen in Arizona, Georgia, Florida. Um, People don't really like cold weather, which is a huge (laughs) thing, right? So (laughs) in a world in which people don't like cold weather and air conditioning is plentiful and relatively cheap, we've seen huge migration from cold areas of the country to warm areas of the country. Um, And, you know, that means that there's a huge population shift from uh, the Northeast and the Midwest down to states like um, Georgia, the Carolinas, Florida, Texas, Arizona, California, although California is now sort of losing population. And this has meant um, a lot of growth. Uh, Where has the growth, the population economic growth in Texas uh, been centered? Uh, in the cities. And um, that's where, and then the suburbs. Um, so they call it the triangle and there's Dallas, Fort Worth. And then it, you take Interstate 35 down to Austin and you go further on San Antonio. And then east of there is Houston. And so that whole triangle there, um, the, the suburbs have absolutely exploded. Um, just the Every time I go home, there's just new, um, the rural areas are just slowly taking up in the suburbs. And so the companies also want to go to Texas, and it's something Republicans are very proud of, lower taxes, um, Toyota, places like that. And so it's it, there's been a real conscious shift since the oil bust of the 1980s to diversify the economy. It has a good public university system. And so, but I, I think... At least Republicans will tell you it's probably more taxes than the weather than anything because our summers can be pretty hot. But uh, that that is and there there it's a huge point of pride to steal economic jobs and businesses from California. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the 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 sort of the conservative and Republican case for why people move to Texas is because they keep taxes low, um, and it's a good business friendly environment with low regulation. And I I, I don't think I would dismiss that out of hand. I think. Um, I, I think the the sort of triumvirate that you've seen p- beyond Texas mm-hmm. is relatively low taxes, cheap housing, and no, no no cold weather. All tend Absolutely. to be things that people seek out in you know, and and so I think those three things have really driven people because. You know, there's more space in those parts of the country than there is, like, in the Northeast and the Midwest. Uh, and space means it's easier and cheaper to build homes. And easier and cheaper to build homes means you could buy homes for less. And that means you can, you know, have a middle-class life with a nice three- or four-bedroom house for $200,000, which is totally impossible <laughs> in huge swaths of the, of the more, you know, more populated parts of the country. 
A, a one-bedroom apartment in where I live, Washington, D.C., is what a three-bedroom, two-bath in my hometown of Fort Worth easily goes for. And it's just, it, it blows my parents' minds to think about real estate on the East Coast. So you've got, so you've got this, um, all these people sort of moving there um, and and big population growth, and it's centered around the cities and the suburbs and that triangle. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but like a shocking percentage of the population of Texas is actually in in that sort of triangle. Absolutely. And that's what we're watching with the um, the the political shakeup that's happening in the state. So the biggest explainer of this was in 2018, I was at Congressman O'Rourke's quote unquote victory party. And um, I was watching the results come in and it looked like he was going to win um, and that Ted Cruz was in a lot of trouble. And a lot of Congress people who we weren't watching were in trouble. And I went and did a TV hit and I came back. Well, all of a sudden the numbers flipped. And what it was, was the cities count their votes faster than the rural areas. So we saw in real time the divide between rural and city, but city came in first. So I was expecting that this past election night, and it was even more dramatic of a swing. It looked like Wendy Davis was going to beat Chip Roy in the congressional seat by 10 points, and she ended up losing by seven. And so that is the most like dramatic illustration um, of just how how much that divide is growing. And that is basically, I think, more than anything, assuming the suburbs that Trump is a realignment, um, it's just a matter of time before the cities take over the rural area and the vote counts statewide. There's a guy named Derek Ryan, who I follow on Twitter, who's like a Republican kind of you know, campaign guy, operative numbers guy. And I remember watching him that night with Beto and he was like, oh, Beto's going to win because he had preconceived notions of what numbers you need to hit in what suburbs. Yeah. And, and Cruz was not hitting them. And he was like, oh, he's toast. And then it, but, but he did not account for, and this is the trend we've seen all over the country, but it's been like supercharged in Texas that like those, those, those rural margins are just insane. And so you, you've got, I mean, Texas is a microcosm for the bigger trends in the country, but they're kind of supercharged there. Like things are moving very quickly in the metro areas and they're moving very, they're polarizing even more in a Republican direction in the rural areas. Absolutely. And that, I honestly thought Democrats were going to have a better night than they did. But when I did see the voter turnout coming in, I was extremely reluctant to say this is for sure good for Democrats because the, the, I haven't actually been in this state. I'm going home tomorrow, but, um, I haven't been home because of the pandemic. And I'll let you know, and I ask people on the ground, what do you see? What do you hear? And everyone just tells me how the rural areas were blanketed with Trump enthusiasm, barns yeah. painted, signs everywhere. And um, I mean, it is a, you get past those cities and it just drops really quickly into Republican territory. And so um, it is it is an absolutely fascinating dynamic. And one of the things that I think through Democrats was I kept being told like they'd never seen groups move faster than the suburbs in Texas toward any party. And I think they probably just got a little bit of over out in front of their skis this year. What is what is driving what's happening in the suburbs? Is it is it the sort of kind of I mean, it's one thing like Harris County, which is, you know, where Houston is fairly diverse, um, it kind of moved to to the left first. But like, you know, Dallas, Dallas, Fort Worth, that area that used to be a la San Diego, which also just, by the way, swung to, to the Democrats like Dallas, Fort Worth and San Diego were like two of the big cities in America that were Republican, <laughs> like the last few, basically. Um and like the idea that the Dallas, I mean, we all grew up right in the eighties with Dallas was yeah. like, 
you know, it was like oil money and like, you know, rich, rich Republicans and then people that worked for rich Republicans who also were Republicans, basically what it was. The idea that Dallas would be moving into the Democratic Party is just insane. So Dallas, I mean, there's a book about Dallas 1963, and it's just about how crazy right wing it was when President Kennedy came in before the assassination. And it was just this cultural examination. And the only liberal in town was Stanley Marcus, who owns Neiman Marcus. Um, and he was just so outgunned by everyone around him in Dallas society. And um, I'm from Fort Worth, which was the last urban county in Texas and maybe in America to be Republican. Right. And um, um, it flipped for Beto and it just narrowly stayed that way for Biden. And Fort Worth is, um, you know, you couldn't have driven into my high school with an Al Gore sticker in high school when that election was happening. I mean, it was George Bush was the only acceptable person to support. And so um, absolutely. I mean, these are and then Harris County, to me, is the most fascinating part of the state. You've got it used to be Republican. I mean, Kay Bailey Hutchison and George W. Bush used to carry it by 30 points, almost three to or two to one margins. And it and it's so much of this is Donald Trump. Um, there is it, the numbers just sort of turn upside down when you start looking at 2016. And Donald Trump plays extremely well in the rural areas, but he is not, he has not done well in the cities and the suburbs. And there were two early warnings to me in the Trump administration. And the first was, um, the women's march. Uh, I was in DC, but I was seeing photos of my friends at the Fort Worth women's march. Um, and uh, there were t 10,000 people downtown, something like that. And I just had never even heard of a protest like that in my hometown. And the other thing was um, all of my friends who I went to high school with and their moms and some of their dads um, in March of 2017 all went to a sold out Planned Parenthood luncheon featuring <laughs> the headliner speaker, uh, little Barbara Bush, the granddaughter. And I mean, it was like I had 15 people in there recording for me so I could get what she said. Um, but I'd never even really heard of people going to Planned Parenthood events. And it was just this huge social thing. And the idea was you bring someone new and it, it was sort of a startling. I don't think this is the same thing anymore. So I think it's in my personal awareness, I think there are a lot of very unhappy college-educated white women. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think that the sort of college-educated folks, polarization around that, particularly combined with polarization on gender and, and personal distrust, distaste for Donald Trump, um, has moved things. But then the, one of the things that happened in 2020, and we can, you know, we'll talk about it more, but one of the things that happened is that there's also, it seems like a fair amount of ticket splitting. So if you look at those, there's a bunch of suburban seats that Dems had their eyes on. The Wendy Davis Chip Roy mm -hmm. is one of the, uh, one of the ones that you, you, you mentioned. Um, there were a number of others, none of which Democrats were able to flip. It seems like there was a fair amount of ticket splitting there that it really was for a lot of these people about Trump more than a larger affection of the Democratic Party. And the degree to which that holds or doesn't hold is going to be massively determinative, I think, of the future Texas politics. So, first of all, this was our first election in I don't know how long where there was no straight ticket voting. So that probably saved some right. down ballot Republicans. And that, by the way, that was a huge um, push by Republicans for there not yes. to be straight ticket voting. Correct. Um, and that is the central question of 2022 in the midterms. And I, I'm extremely 
reluctant to make predictions. I, I think part of my analysis of 2020 and the down ballot is Donald Trump scrambles things in ways I don't have the intellect or imagination to understand. So I, I don't know how this is going to shake out. I do. I, I think that there were a lot of people who went to vote against Donald Trump and who happily voted for John Cornyn and down ballot Republicans. I think it was they just were not keen on Donald Trump. The thing that happened, though, with O'Rourke, that um, there's a mantra in politics that is yard signs don't vote. And I understand that. And there was like a poli-sci study that Rick Perry used. And there there became this cultural thing of yard signs are a waste of money. Don't spend money on them. And so that hasn't really been a yard sign war in Texas. Well, O'Rourke used yard signs. And what happened was um, people in... Republican sides of town and whether it was River Oaks and Houston or other play in other cities had Beto O'Rourke signs in their yards. And it was sort of a coming out process of people put like who lived in Republican areas saying, you know what? I'm actually a Democrat. And they would go to meetings and clubs, um, and, uh, see people they knew and didn't know, oh, you're a Democrat too. And so I think it, what has changed that can't go back is there's now a social acceptance of being a Democrat in a way that did right. not exist before 2018. There's, there's a bunch of things that are driving this, right? Trump, urbanization in, increase, growth in metro areas, and the fact that metro areas and, and formerly bedrock Republican constituencies in the South, for instance, suburban college educated white people that used to be a huge Republican constituency are now moving towards Democrats in the Trump era. But also it strikes me that like that, you know, Beto is a, is a sort of become a polarizing figure and almost, I think, kind of like, you know, there was a lot of dumping on him in his presidential campaign. But I think it obscures just how incredible a race that guy ran in 2018. I agree. And I think um, the, the presidential race did not work out. And I think what polarized him more than anything was his comment about taking away the AR-15. Um, that's just kryptonite in Texas. Um, right. And so the idea was to tie every Democrat to that. But I think one of the reasons Democrats came up short, and I didn't really know what to think of it at the time, but they did not door knock. And that was sort of how it was um, nationally. But all these Democrats, and they were raising a ton of money because they could do fundraisers from their living room on Zoom all over America. And um, they were raising tons of money, but they weren't out campaigning the way Republicans were. And my metaphor for O'Rourke in 2018 was, and this is the frustrating, as a, as a national political reporter, I'll go to Iowa and New Hampshire and be around these people who are very smug about not getting, you know, I won't make up my mind until I meet all the candidates. And it's this, this very, like, um, it is an expectation. And I'm from a state of 30 million people, and it's been virtually ignored for 20, 30 years in the presidential contest. And um, there's, you know, before 2018, there was only one competitive U.S. congressional seat. John Cornyn faced nominal competition in 2014. And what O'Rourke did was he showed up and he, he went showed to, up. And it was my metaphor was like, so the best ice cream in the world is from Texas and it's called Bluebell. And um, that's just indisputable. But as a kid, 
I lived in a neighborhood with mostly older people, and so the ice cream truck never really came around. But if I heard the chimes of the the truck, I'd get really excited, and it would not matter if there was ice cream in the freezer. That it was, it mattered that the ice cream truck remembered to come by, and that meant something to me. And that that was sort of what was happening with O'Rourke. He was showing up to these towns that nobody bothered to come to, that may not have had Democratic advertising. I mean, by the nature of the 254 county tour, but he was also just everywhere. And if you wanted a photo with Beto O'Rourke, you could get one and people would put it on Facebook. And that was more how he built traction than anything else was, who is this guy that keeps showing up in my Facebook feed? And he was such a backbencher congressman before that race. And so instead of having a direct mail or a television ad campaign, O'Rourke really did the retail politicking. And that is part of why I was surprised he didn't have a better run, given that that is how New Hampshire and uh, Iowa politics go. Um, I think there was just a lot going on there. But um, so that is how O'Rourke changed it. And just person by person, he and he he had an extra he has an extraordinary memory. He briefly met my mother at uh, a Texas Tribune event and I'd forgotten they even met. And then he saw her on the trail and he recognized her. And it was just wow. I mean, he it, it, that's like Bill Clinton level type uh, yeah, that, politicking this, there. This is a thing that people like he really is an exceptional retail politician. Um, and I think like the post 2018 trajectory of him that got lost a little bit. And I think partly because it made no sense that he would run for president, really. Um, but but the, and I think that campaign like that, that point you make about, you know, what it means to be able when you said like you you couldn't drive into my high school, you know, parking lot with a gore sticker, you know, back in the day, like what it what it means in places to be able to say like what your beliefs are and find that there are other people who have those beliefs that that that's the first step to actually building some political power. I mean, literally there were meetups and they had to keep moving venues because they kept growing. And I grew up on the West side of Fort Worth, which is very Republican. And, um, it was almost a secret society. People would see folks they knew and then say, don't tell my dad, don't tell my husband I'm here. And, um, I would see women voting, um, at the, the, uh, one of the voting places where, near where I grew up and I would interview them and they told me they voted against Cruz and they voted for Beto, but they wouldn't give me their name because they didn't want their husbands to know. So there was like almost a mischievous aspect to that campaign. I mean, I think the thing to remember about 2020 is it was a status quo election. It felt much worse for Democrats because they spent so much money, but they actually didn't lose ground. Some of the margins did grow for Republican and their benefit in a lot of these districts, but it really was a status quo situation. But they were not able to build upon what that on the O'Rourke factor. Yeah, right. So they right. It, 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 there was a mismatch between expectations and reality, but it was a and they did badly uh, in, in absolute terms. But it's not like the state moved to the right, you know, dramatically in 2020. No. So in 2010, that was just there. Democrats were on the march in the post Obama boom. Um, they almost captured the state house. Um, they are, they almost had a democratic speaker. Um, and then everything washed out in 2010. I mean, the delegation, the Demo- that, that is when Blake Farenthal came to Congress and the, the state house got wiped out. It, Harris County was Republican. People lost who weren't even expecting it. That was not this year for Democrats, but it was, it was 
devastating in the sense of there was so much optimism. They were going to capture the state house. They needed nine seats. They captured, I think they're coming out with a net zero or plus one. I can't remember the, the tally at this point. Um, and there was hope that they could start with redistricting and just get a map that's a little bit better. Um, and that is what, that is, that is the bigger devastation rather than in Democrats actually incumbents losing. We'll be back after this quick break. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. All right, so you've got you got the metro areas in the triangle. Uh, mm-hmm. Then you've got uh, you've got the Gulf in East Texas, right? You've got mm-hmm. the massive expanse of West Texas, uh, which is you know deep, deep, deep red, not that populated. Mm-hmm. Tons of small counties, tons of oil and gas, right? Um, and then you've got you've got the the Rio Grande Valley, and that's I think one of the other big stories of twenty twenty. It's been a Absolutely. national story. I mean, when you look at maps that breakout swing towards one direction or the other and their magnitude. Basically, the two biggest places on the entire map that jump out are Miami-Dade, which had an enormous swing towards Donald Trump, and the Rio Grande Valley, which had some counties that swung 40, 50 points in his favor. Um, What's your understanding of what what happened in in the valley? I think there's going to be legions of academic studies on this. I think it's something we're still trying to figure out. I think the basic early blush, first blush analysis is Republicans showed up and asked for their votes. And um, it was extremely clever. And it was something I did not detect at all. And I was on the phone every day trying to figure out what was going on in the state. I think additionally, um, this is the rural urban divide again. Um, this is why the Texas 23rd district, which was the only district that was drawn to be competitive, and it is bigger than most states. It runs from San Antonio to El Paso and takes eight hours to drive across. Um, it's why it's so unpredictable. And there's been sort of a sudden discovery that the Latino vote is not monolithic. And I think most people who follow Texas politics could have told you that already. Absolutely. There, there are Latinos who've been in Texas longer than their families longer than many Anglos. And they may not have the same positions on immigration as a lot of other Hispanics. You have, you know, this is what I think the crux of 2020 in Texas was. If you lived in a remote area and rural, you could not understand why people were freaking out about the pandemic. You couldn't understand why businesses had to be shut down if nobody around you had this virus. Um, Now, the risks of rural Texas getting hit are much worse if it does happen because the hospital system is much more difficult right. to ac- access. 
Um, and there was frustration. I mean, I would hear frustration among Democrats. And if your livelihood was right. tied to a business that had to be shut down, you were going to be mad. Wait, but the Valley, but I, I totally agree with that as a general analysis, but the Valley got hit really hard. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, they're like, the, it really, it really did. Like, I, and I, I think that's, a, I think that's a really true and important analysis for huge swaths of the country. The thing that's that right. I've, I find so striking actually about the Valley is that the Valley is one of the few rural places in America that got nailed in the first two waves. If you look at those yeah. first two waves, you have April, April and March, you have New York metro area, Detroit metro area, and New Orleans. Then you've got the, the, the summer wave, and that hits a lot of, it hits parts of South Florida, it hits Harris County very badly, it hits Maricopa County very badly, but it hits the valley really hard. And there's a period of time where, you know, all the stuff that we've seen, you know, Hidalgo County's medical system melting down, nurses in yeah. from Mississippi and Louisiana, like the whole nine. And like, it didn't seem to matter politically. In fact, it went in the opposite You're right. direction. You're right. And I just think that's a fact, like to me, I'm not, I'm, I don't mean to say that to correct you. I just yeah. think like that actually, no, is, it's a good point. It's part of what's so complex about it to me, because um, I think your analysis about how large swaths of rural America understood the lockdowns is 100% on point. It's true in Texas. It's true in huge parts of the country. Um, but the Valley got hit pretty hard and it, 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 it still swung to the right. I think that, you know, your point about this is not a monolithic population. I also think generally, like, and I'm curious what you think of this, you know, one of the big divides in American life is like metro area versus rural. And what ends up happening is that because of the ways in which um, different populations are spread in different ways, like metro areas tend to be the places with the heaviest concentrations of non-white folks. But you know, the Rio Grande Valley is an example of a place that's predominantly non-white and also super rural. And I wonder the degree to which, like, the rural polarization, like, like those are our people, we're, we're Trump people, like, supersedes anything else, you know? Because those are rural folks. Like, that's country folks. Those are ranches. That's, like, you know, that's not metro area kind of stuff. And I wonder how much that also is part of this as well. I mean, it could be. I think it's... Uh... Phil Monvell is the congressman from uh, Brownsville, which is just at the very tip. Um, yep. And there, there's a cluster of cities in that area. Um, I believe it was he who said, and I, I apologize to him if I'm misquoting him, but said to one of some of my colleagues that part of it was they just didn't show up. The Democrats, um, the National Party didn't. And there aren't any, there were no competitive um, congressional seats outside of the 23rd, which is a little bit west of there, um, where Democrats were really making the case. Right. Um, on top of that, Hillary Clinton actually has really good relationships down there. She campaigned right. down there in 1972. So if you had told me after the fact that Biden wouldn't hit her numbers, I, I, that wouldn't have surprised me. But just the dramatic swing, I think, is something we're going to have to figure out. I think it's going to be um, yeah. a lot of reporters going down there. I think there's also abortion is an issue. Yep. Um, and so it's just very complex. But I can tell you, a lot of folks down there who are Democrats were as blindsided as anyone. That's interesting. What, one other thing, one other thought I have, and again, like I'm, this is a sort of, um, you know, we're, we're throwing out hypotheses here um, because yeah. I think it, I, I agree with you that like we just don't have enough data to make definitive claims about what happened and or the reporting. You know, one thing that has struck me in my trips down to the Valley, and I've done a, a number of them, um, is the central role that CBP plays as an employer. Like there's oh. there's huge parts of the RGV where like that's the best job you can get. <laughs> like, 
you know, it's a pretty poor area of the country. Um, if you're talking about like around McAllen and, you know, Hidalgo County and all the way as you move west towards El Paso, like there's not a ton of like there's not a ton of industry. There's big ranches, but like you can go get a job for the CBP and make like a pretty good living and get a house. Someone once said to me, you can get a house with a pool. <laughs> and, wow. yeah. and and be and have a and have a decent job for 20 years and then get a pension and like the amount of funding increase that we've had towards the border over the last 10 years is insane and particularly in the last four years and i just wonder how much it's a little bit of like you know it's it's a little like the chicago machine used to work like there's like i, I wonder how much there's just a kind of like patronage and job situation where you know the republican party is the party of more money on more border funding <laughs> and that's like yeah. that's jobs for people you know, I can't speak to that. I just, I'm not fluent enough in that. But what I can yeah. say this is, um, you are going to see Democrats down in that valley next cycle because one of the congressmen almost lost, yep. uh, Congressman Vicente Gonzalez. And that was sort of my thunderstruck moment. I felt like things were so volatile that there might be an incumbent who gets into trouble. I just was not expecting it to be there. And he is going to have to run a really robust, I mean, he's a sophomore, I think, um, a robust campaign. And we're going to see the DCCC down there because their first priority is not going to be on offense. It's going to be to defend him. And so there may be a reverse coattails effect there um, in the future. But I also had a theory on reverse coattails for the larger cycle and it didn't pan out. So, um, but I think we'll see more democratic activity down there because of that. But also if one of the things Biden was not he did not seriously come after Texas. He spent some money, but he didn't come down there. Harris did. Um, but, and it made sense to me at two in the morning on election night when we weren't sure if Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin were going to hold or go flip for the Democrats. And I, I imagine his campaign manager, Jen O'Malley Dillon, would have been, you know, every Democrat in the world would have been screaming at her if there'd been any doubt and she'd been playing for Texas at the same time. So I, I do think if the party is serious about Texas, just like young Hillary Clinton in 1972, we may see young Democrats come to that come to that area and organize. We know sort of the Democrats, I think, have a fairly clear like there's a lot of frustration about the shortcomings, a lot of frustration about falling short, a lot of hope that feels like it's not repaid. I saw Red Beto's memo where he said that, you know, mm -hmm. the lack of canvassing was a problem. There's obviously going to be a lot of autopsies of what happened in the, in, in, in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, you know, Republicans, I mean, you know, Ted Cruz, other people have been very much like sounding an alarm about Texas. And part mm -hmm. of that is always like a little bit of a cynical, like, please donors give money. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're, ta you're talking your book when you're telling people that a race is closed. Yeah. But I think there's also some genuine worry. Um, how genuine do you think it is? And, and, and will there be a kind of like relief now? Republicans will be like, well, we, we, we have this on lock. I think they've bought themselves time. Um, and that's first going to pan out in redistricting. And I think redistricting is going to tell us what Republicans think about the next decade. And Texas is probably going to get two to three seats. Do Republicans, and I'm using the word conservative in strategy, not ideology, do they, do they take a conservative approach in the map or do they take a, an aggressive one? Are they looking to pack as many Republicans as possible into the Texas delegation, um, which is what they've done in the past? Uh, and also the Voting Rights Act has been gutted so they don't have to meet the same standards that they used to. Um, and they have a lot freer hand in the drawing. Um, and do they go super aggressive or do they maybe just try to protect the incumbents who are in office and 
be much more conservative and give the incumbents more room in the event a wave hits in the next decade. And those lines start to to, to erase where um, it's not as uh, they don't lose you know, seven incumbents in 2026, if that right. makes sense. This is a, no, this is such a key point about gerrymandering, right? Which is that you you face a choice in your gerrymandering, which itself is messed up, right? Because because you have the, you know, the elected officials are choosing their yeah. voters, which is like the old Bertolt Brecht joke um, about yeah. dissolving the people and electing another. But, but, but you always have the choice. Like the, if there's a certain pool of votes, right? Um, you can say, let's create three Republican districts that are R plus seven or four that are R plus two. Right. I mean, that, yeah. I'm, I'm inventing the math here, but you could yeah. do you could do fewer Republican districts that have bigger padding or more Republican districts that are a little thinner. And the question is, if they're a little thinner, how thin is too thin that you set yourself up to lose them? And so what I'm hearing from you is it'll be an interesting indicator of how confident they're feeling when they make those choices about how aggressive to be with those gerrymanders. Absolutely. And I think that's the debate that's happening right now. Um, and and this is, it feels like it's a ticking time bomb, but it's just like, how long does this take? And the other indicator is, um, I, it looks like most of the statewide officials are, there may be a little bit of a shakeup here and there, but I think the other signal and on the Democratic side of confidence is do people step up and run in 2022? Do, do Democrats field a viable gubernatorial candidate? Um, is, is a member of the delegation willing to give up their U.S. House seat and take that jump? Um, there is a little bit of a farm team. That is what came out of 2018, um, was there are some up and comers, um, more polished, more sophisticated campaigns. So I think those are the two main indicators of where things are headed. Well, I, when you talk about up and comers, we got to talk for a second about a person who I think is one of the most interesting politicians in America, and that's the Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just so I mean, she's she's like what? She's like 29, or 30 years old. Um, she went to Stanford. She was going to get a dual degree, I think, at NYU in law school and and a policy degree at the Kennedy School of Government. And she dropped out of that to come back and run in 2018 for this county judge position, which is the county executive. Every county has a judge. And she won it. It was a big surprise upset. And she's she was the sort of driving force behind this incredible voter turnout. And she just, you know, I've had her on the show a bunch and she just has a kind of like, you know, preternatural presence. It's it's she's really a striking figure. I, I was not that mature when I was 29. I can say that um, that and that is the implication. So it, it completely blindsided Republicans to have this Democrat they'd never heard of take that position, which is has proven to be extremely powerful. Um, and so, and that she was able, and the county clerk, able to loosen up the voting requirements. And um, we saw all this turnout. So there are repercussions to Democrats winning j- positions no one even really thinks about. Um, and it, it, there are implications. And so, when I first took this job in late 2014, there just wasn't even a farm team. I mean, it was, there was nothing. The cupboard was bare. And right. now they're starting to build school board members. And she's the perfect example of how much more Democrats can push forward when they get a toehold in. You know, one thing that's striking to me about her, too, is that, you know, there's such a big difference between being a young legislator and a young executive. Like, 
you know, if 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 someone elected me to Congress tomorrow, um, I'm not that young. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> young, not as young as Lena Hidalgo. But if someone someone literally said you have to show up and be a congressman tomorrow, like I would be, I would be nervous and scared. But I'd also be like, okay, well, I'll get an orientation. I'll get some staff around me, and like mostly you'll be voting the way leadership tells you, and you can try to burrow in on a few issues in your district. But if someone told told me tomorrow, like go be the executive of a county of 4 million people, I would be straight up terrified. Like That gets hit, hit by hurricanes? Yeah, that gets I mean, hit by hurricanes that had COVID. Like, it's just a very different thing to be an executive where you are making operational decisions about basic things in people's lives day to day, and you have to manage and run that. And and to be that age and, and do that is like, is to me, is just really impressive and challenging. Exactly. And I mean, I think that's, um, you know, we're seeing some of this in Congress. Um, You know, sometimes the job is as much about live streaming and being, you know, connected, but not necessarily passing laws. And I mean, she's been under pressure for most of her tenure in this role in ways that are pretty staggering. So let me let me ask about sort of the broadest, you know, this is almost not a political conversation, but kind of a cultural one of like, you know, people talk about the Californication of um, Texas and like, you know, anyone who's been to Austin recently, you know, it's it's really striking how much that city's changed, how much is a boomtown, how it's gone from like this, like, you know, keep Austin weird, quirky place that had the state capital and That's also, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, well, the state capital, you know, Austin was an interesting place because because between the state capital uh, and the uh, and the university, you have stable. You don't have a boom bust cycle. Um, you yeah. have stable employment, unlike other cities in in Texas that were much more dependent on on oil and gas, which is 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 constantly going through boom busts. Um, and so it had this totally independent sort of workforce, like kind of business base, um, employment base that was completely independent of the, the, these other Texas cities in many ways. And that made it so distinct and strange and, and amazing and, and, and this sort of mecca for artists and live music and South by Southwest. It's become almost this kind of like Silicon Valley of the South town now. Um, and I think there's like, you know, I, I, I just wonder like what that means for the state the more that that happens. Well, it's um, it is fascinating. I did a story on the oil bust of '86. Once oil prices dropped, just kind of in the the real time in May, um, looking back, and it is a much more stable place. But Texas as a whole is more stable. Um, I mean, in this story, people were trying to pawn off their helicopters in Houston um, because they were using those to avoid traffic. And once that happened, the state leaders really wanted to diversify the economy. Um, but yeah, I mean, in Austin in itself is fascinating um, with redistricting. Just um, no Republican wants anything to... First, they carved up Austin. They wanted to dilute the liberal vote there. And now no Republican wants to touch Austin um, in their districts because it's uh, so potent of a voting block. Um, but absolutely, I mean, it's... Uh, my dad and I, um, one time were driving into Austin from the West side and, uh, we just looked at the skyline and he grew up there and we both just kind of looked at each other and I'm like, none of these skyscrapers were here when I lived here in school. And he said, not even when I was here, he was like, it's really different. But, um, so I think it's a really diversifying economy. I mean, there, the lack of unions has, um, is an attraction for car companies. And, um, I guess, 
unions do apply there. But, um, you know, it, it really, American Airlines is in Texas. Um, it's, it's, it's becoming a very different, um, state from its roots, but we still kind of keep our, um, Mexican heritage, our cowboy heritage. It's still very much a part of daily life. And then I guess the final question is like, is about the fossil fuel industry because, you know, it's not, it's not long for this world. <laughs> and I, I'm sure the people of Texas don't want to hear that. And I understand why they, a lot of people in Texas don't want to hear that. I'm sure some people in Texas are, are happy to hear that. But, you know, the writing's on the wall. Um, the, the natural gas is already, uh, I mean, coal is, you know, underwater everywhere. Um, natural yeah. gas, natural gas is, is already starting to have, um, huge exits by private equity dollars that, that see the writing on the wall. Price competitiveness is declining as other forms of clean energy get cheaper. Um, and you've even got, I think there's a rep in the state house of Texas who now wants to tax all non-natural gas energy. <laughs> I'm not just, up enough on the state ledge, but that wouldn't shock me. It's totally amazing. But like, it just is going to be a huge deal and transformation in Texas. And I wonder just what that will look like. So it's, I mean, when I graduated from college, most of my hometown friends were had a job called landman. And it didn't matter if you were female or male, you were a landman. And that is the person, the detective who figures out who owns the rights to minerals underneath property. Um, and that was the big boom of natural gas. Um, and it is a daily my prom was at a place called the Petroleum Club, and every town has a Petroleum Club. Um, so it is a huge part. But like I said, they are diversifying the economy, and that is a conscious thought because of the bust in the 80s. But I think this is, again, why I think Harris County is the most interesting part of the state, because this is a city that it, the economy is based in fossil fuels. But at the same time, they've gotten the worst hurricane in 500 years that is a part of global warming. So there is an awareness of that this needs to be dealt with for survival, but also that's how people make a living. Um, but I can tell you when Joe Biden on that last debate said, I can't remember the wording of it, but when he, he said we need to get off fossil fuels or whatever it was, it was a thunder strike in Texas politics for a few days. And it may have saved a couple of Republican incumbents. Um, And that is, I mean, nothing makes Texas Democrats shudder more than the words um, Green New Deal. Um, And if Democrats want to be on offense in Texas, it's not that you don't have to be pro-environment, but it's how are you going to message this in a way that doesn't freak people out and scare the Texas economy? I mean, it really, it really is. To me, that's, it's basically an unsolvable problem because like, we have to get rid of fossil fuel and fossil fuel just is actually a huge industry in Texas. And there's no like messaging the problem away. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like I I, I'm speaking for myself now, like like fossil fuels will have to go. Lots of people work for fossil fuel companies (laughs) and you can say, we're going to take care of you and blah, blah, blah. They're, it's not crazy for them not to trust you, but you can't message that problem away. Like, you know, I think the only answer is that the market is going to start to do a lot of this work. Um, yeah. And at, to the extent you start to see declining employment in natural gas as the as the the industry shrinks, like that will also shrink its power. And I don't think there's but I don't think there's a messaging solution to it. Well, and that I mean, I before I did Texas, I covered some West Virginia politics at roll call and I saw the same thing with coal and it was there was no alternative. And the good thing in Texas is, is that they've been thinking about this for a long time. But it's it's not going to be an easy transition. I can assure you of that. Yeah. In any direction. 
it's not going to be an easy transition basically for anyone. I do have this like dream of like, can we just do for, you know, oil field workers what Trump did for the farmers that he screwed with the tariffs and write $31 billion worth of checks, which actually strikes me as like a pretty good idea, but I, I'm not sure that's going to fly either. I don't think, well, and you know, Texans don't like taking money from the exactly. government. That's, no, that, yeah, it's, that, that's, it just wouldn't play well. I know. That's a problem. Abby Livingston is the Washington bureau chief for the Texas Tribune. She is a seventh generation Texan. She's a great follow on Twitter and a great person to read about uh, Texas politics. Thank you so much, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, my great thanks to Abby Livingston at the Texas Tribune uh, for that fantastic conversation. Texas politics really are fascinating. Uh, the Tribune is a great publication uh, that you should check out. And if you are so inclined, uh, support. They're one of the, sort of the few vibrant um, reader-supported local nonprofit regional uh, print outlets that have really kind of pioneered a model of of, of how to work uh, in, in the sort of post-newspaper age, as depressing as that is. Um, so check out the Texas Tribune. You can always tweet us the hashtag withpod, email us at withpod at gmail.com. Why is this happening is presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by the All In Team, and features music by Eddie Cooper. You can see more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here, by going to NBCNews.com slash why is this happening. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.